First Peter Bible Study, Part 3, Third Introduction, for lay leaders and deacons to conduct after the Sunday service or during a midweek Bible study session. And yes, you heard that right, this is the third introduction to the book of First Peter. Now, why would we have three separate introductions to the book of First Peter? First of all, if we don't ask the questions, who, what, when, where, why, what is the purpose of this book, etc., we won't be able to understand, well, anything in Scripture, really. A good example of this is the question, who? If St. John did not write St. John's Gospel, if this apostle didn't write it, then I could just say, well, some guy wrote a nice story about Jesus. But if he is St. John the Apostle, then I am bound to believe what he says, because this is an eyewitness of Christ, sent by Christ himself to relate this message to all of the faithful. We could say the same thing about asking the what question for, say, Leviticus. If I see the book of Leviticus as just a collection of commands, if I get that wrong, then I might end up applying those commands to myself. And suddenly I'm going out trying to find a Levitical priest to cleanse my house the next time there is mold in it. But if I understand that this was written to the Levitical priesthood by Moses, and to the children of Israel at large for things like purity and cleanliness as the people of God in that time, well, then I understand that it is a silly application to say I shouldn't be mixing fabric. One of the ways we prevent this from happening is by finding the structure of the book. Well, what do I mean by this? Well, on the VLP website, verylutheran.biz, under the Church Resources tab, you can find the PDF of this particular study, everything we're discussing today. And in it, I have charted out the structure of 1 Peter from passage to passage. And I've included the length of each passage and a little summary there of what the passage is getting at. What is it about? When we do this, we find the answer to the question, what? We've already established St. Peter the Apostle is the true author of this epistle. We've talked about how this is a Catholic or universal epistle, so all of the body of Christ must see this epistle as binding on us. And we've also talked about his purpose, the why for his writing. The occasion for it is that the church is persecuted and St. Peter wants to bring us to an awareness of God's care, our status, and the identification of the believer with Christ in the experience of trials. But in order to find out how St. Peter accomplishes this purpose, what he is saying, it's good to find the structure of the book. It will also help us to identify any motifs that St. Peter might be bringing into the text. Remember, he was a Hebrew writer. The good apostle was of Hebrew lineage, meaning he was eminently familiar with the writing styles and conventions of 
Hebrew literature, especially the Old Testament. Of course, we don't go into the text assuming that he's going to be doing things like parallelisms or chiasm. We need to discover whether or not he's doing that by laying out the structure of the book. And it turns out, after I've come up with a good outline for this book, that St. Peter isn't aping Old Testament writing conventions, but he does bring in an Old Testament-style motif of repetition. Let's look at some of the uh, summary titles I've given these sections. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13-21 through 21 is about self-conduct on account of salvation. Chapter 1, verse 22 through chapter 2, verse 3, church conduct in the collective sense on account of salvation. Chapter 2, verse 11 to 25, exilic conduct from salvation. St. Peter talking about the church being in exile. Chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, incentives for virtue from salvation. Uh, chapter 3, verses 13 through 22, again, exilic conduct from salvation. You see chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, self-discipline from salvation. And chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, connecting our current struggle with future glory on account of salvation. Are you noticing a theme here? St. <laughs> Peter loves to connect who you are in Jesus Christ your status before God with how you conduct yourself as a believer. Now that will lead to the question of what exactly we are in the eyes of God. What is our status to him? And St. Peter does answer that with a central passage in chapter 2, chapter 2 verses 4 through 10 which will probably take us the longest to parse through and explain because it is so foundational to this book. But he says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Our first reaction, of course, when we read that text is to say, this is fantastic news. This is who God himself says we are as Christians. Like, that's fantastic. That's amazing news. But it's not just good news. 
It's also a passage that answers the question, what is he getting at when he talks about, on account of what Jesus has done for you, this is how you will act. When we read, say, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Okay, I hear that, and I say, all right, Jesus suffered, I'm going to suffer. All right, but how do we characterize the suffering of Christ? Is it just the man of sorrows limply moving towards Golgotha, where he is crucified? Because he's so humble and small and tiny, like, like baby Jesus going to the hill? Well, no, this is the king of all creation, the high priest of all believers, he who deserved infinite dignity and who retained his dignity according to his true identity, suffering for the sake of the gospel for sinners. And so St. Peter says, we arm ourselves with the same mindset. What mindset? Well, I'm doing this, and I'm living this way, and I'm suffering in this way in my trials because God has elevated me and all believers to be something more than I was when I was not a Christian. To say that I am greater than I was, to say that I belong to God as a priest in his priesthood, as part of a royal family. Okay, so my suffering is on account of this part of me, this new identity in him, and that's also why I don't go about acting like I used to, as somebody maybe in a degenerate lifestyle or in occultic wickedness. Understanding the structure of St. Peter, the outline of his first epistle, tells us that he has a Hebrew sense of motif and reminder with a central text close to the middle to tell us what the overarching point is. You see, I could say, Jesus saved you, therefore live for Jesus. And that's easily understood. My God saved me, therefore I live for my God. Yes. But how do I characterize that? What is the attitude and mindset that fulfills St. Peter's encouraging purpose? He wants to encourage the believers. So, if I say, Jesus saved me, therefore I live for Jesus, because I am a dirty, rotten, disgusting worm that he was very reluctant to save. I mean, when he went to Golgotha, he was like, really, seriously, I have to die for uh, the director of the VLP? Gosh, I hate that guy. 
You know what, I hope he just feels guilty and disgusting his whole life. Is that what St. Peter is getting at? No. His structure is going to help accomplish his purpose of encouraging me. And all believers saying, you are more than you once were. So let's talk about how you conduct yourself now that you are more than you once were. Let's talk about how the church, full of Christians who populate the priesthood of all believers, how they treat each other now that they are saved. If you are a royal priesthood in the middle of what St. Peter calls an exile, if you are this group of people God has set apart from the rest of the world, to the point where he calls non-believers Gentiles, <laughs> you're so different now and so much higher up than you were, how do you survive? Because the situation that we are in is not where we should be. At least we sense that because we understand that this life is the real purgatory. But we're uncomfortable with it because we are now Christians. We're saved. How does a saved believer survive, conduct himself, etc.? I know I'm repeating myself quite a bit here, but that's because St. Peter repeats himself quite a bit to really drive the point home. You are saved. You are brought into the true Israel of God, the church. And therefore, God has brought you to a dignity and an identification with Christ. That's one of the points of this entire life is the imitation of Christ going through much of the same things he did so we can be a people that truly belong to him. Now, of course, St. Peter will also be bringing in various instructions for the church. How do you do marriage? How does the pastorate and the laity, how do they relate to one another? So it is not a perfect chiastic structure like you would find with the Psalms. This is why we have what's called the epistolary genre or epistles being written. It's still going to have a more casual and familiar tone to it, where St. Peter is not bound by very strict poetic syntax and things like that. But nonetheless, because he wants it to stick in our minds, he is going to reinforce his message with motif and repetition, etc. So having established our outline, I'm going to include a lot more resources concerning all of that on the PDF. Please feel free to go to verylutheran.biz to see more of what I'm talking about. It'll be the third installment there. And moving forward, each new installment of the Sunday School series is going to follow the pattern of the outline we've brought up. We'll go ahead and start, though, on chapter 1, verse 10 through 12, since we already brought up his kind of purpose statement, his thesis statement. So, until we get to that, though, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.